Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we offer our take on Noel Pearson's take on our take on the voice to Parliament. We also ask what should be done when online mobs go after conservatives like Roger Scruton and we do something radical in the push to fight inequality. We look at the evidence. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today it's Vietnam Heavy with a book by a local on memories of the war and also a review of Coppola's latest and probably last cut of Apocalypse Now. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today it's Vietnam Heavy with a book by a local on memories of the war and also a review of Coppola's latest and probably last cut of Apocalypse Now. We also look at a remarkable drama series from South America on the liberator, Simon Bolivar, and just to really take up the culture angle a notch, we're going to talk about The Bachelor. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Also with us in the IPA studio are my colleagues, Dr Bella Debrera. Thank you, Scott. And Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Great to have you back, both of you. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate or just read some of our fabulous research. Speaking of our fabulous research, uh, we're going to kick off by talking about uh, something to do with our race has no place research. Um, this week, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago after Ken Wyatt said that the federal government wanted to have a referendum uh, at the end of the current term of parliament. Uh, we talked through the politics of that, what a voice to parliament might look like. And then last week we had uh, Noel Pearson who, who mentioned the IPA no less than nine times in a speech and uh, in so doing described uh, some of our spokesmen as child soldiers. They Don't did, Scott. So um, Noel Pearson was speaking at the Gama Festival of Traditional Cultures um, uh, a few days ago or over the weekend. Um, and he, uh, the line that got the press, we'll put it that way, and the line that drew attention to um, lots of people here at the IPA, obviously. These young boys dispatched by the IPA like so many child soldiers to disseminate this kind of pap simply do not know what they are talking about. Um, uh, uh, anyway, that, that was the line that got a lot of attention. But more importantly, and um, uh, putting that aside, so Noel Pearson's speech is basically a extended um, criticism of the IPA's position and the position of Andrew Bolton, lots of other um, conservative opponents or, or free market opponents of the voice to parliament. Um, as uh, as Pearson has pointed out, um, our opponents in the Institute of Public Affairs are attempting to put a liberal philosophical sheen on Andrew Bolt's argument that a First Nations voice would constitute separate treatment on the base of race, well, on the basis of race in the constitution. Pearson's main criticism is that um, while the race has no place argument um, is compelling, that's not what's on the table. His argument is that they're not proposing to have a First Nations voice on the basis of race, but on the basis of indigeneity. Indigeneity being a description for um, First Nations, people who, have, uh, who were the first inhabitants of the land. Andrew, I know that you've been thinking quite a bit about this. How should we navigate that difference? Does he have a point or not? I think the, the the challenge there is that when you really like analyse what Indigenous would mean in this context, it's hard to separate it from race. What we're saying is not um, that race has no place by virtue of the specific 
racial characteristics of Indigenous people or white people or whatever. We're saying that racial difference doesn't have a place in the Constitution, that we shouldn't be distinguishing between types of Australians. And when we analyse the idea of indigeneity uh, in this context, it's going to be very hard to keep race out of it. For example, my family has been here for since the 1840s, I think, um, but I'm not Indigenous. I don't count. Um, and explaining why I don't count is going to be hard not to fall back on race. So I think he's actually making a distinction where the difference is very unclear. It's certainly counterintuitive and would need a lot more explanation. It doesn't, it doesn't have a really obvious principle definition between what it is an Indigenous person and, or what, what, what would constitute indigeneity and otherwise that is outside the historical context. But well, is uh, it, just, and just before Andrew comes back to that, I mean, that, that is the interesting thing that uh, Pearson uh, accused the IPA of conflating race and indigeneity, but then it's clear that this has been conflated all the way through the all the way through the process. He quotes Murray Gleeson, the uh, former High Court Justice, talking about this, and Gleeson says, "Well, the race power in the Constitution is a de facto uh, head of power for Indigenous issues. So this conflation is not something. If it does exist, it's not something the IPA invented." Yeah, no, no, and and um, and and Pearson says this: in an ideal world, the Constitution would not speak of race. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's or, point. Uh, but but just <laughs> indigeneity. The the. The, I, I think the weakness of his argument, or one of the weaknesses of his argument, is that in fact, in practice, as Andrew is saying, in order to have an indigeneity power, it is, it's not necessarily inevitable, but it's really hard to get away from race-based distinctions unless you specifically say the word indigenous means anybody who was here before white settlement. You'd have to just say anyone who was here before 1788. Yeah. And, and Why don't they just say that? Just make that the cutoff. Because that's hard to – because, again, that would just make it a – I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but that would just make it a historically based rather than a sort of principle on yeah, which but the important, you – But the important, thing, the important thing is that it doesn't permit even, – even if you in define indigeneity as the descendants of people whose families were here before settlement, um, it doesn't um, permit anyone to move from one camp to the other. So there's still going to be a discrete group of people who can trace their lineage back that far, and then another discrete group of people who trace their lineage back to settlement and then to different waves of immigration. But these groups of people, because it's defined by their lineage, can never move from one group to the other. So it is at least de facto a racial distinction because we're talking about a kind of essentialist take on who these people are. And that's what Creates the, what creates the conflict is trying to put this in the Constitution because the Constitution sits at the top of the pyramid, if you like, of all of the different institutions that we have in society. The thing that holds them all together, the thing that sits at the top, is the Parliament specifically and then the Constitution that describes how political power works here in Australia. And by trying to work in distinctions among Australians into that Constitution, we actually risk destabilising the constitutional equilibrium. This is my problem with it. As a conservative, he likes to appeal to conservatives. And I, without putting a liberal sheen on it, putting a conservative sheen on our case would be that we have a, we have a, a specific constitution that governs the way political power is run in this country. Parliament is extremely important in that. And destabilising that equilibrium could lead to worse results uh, and to more radical changes down the, down the track. That's the conservative problem with it. And 
to, to really draw that out, I think it's worth talking about the part of his argument that is designed to appeal to conservatives, which he, he likes to, he, you know, he says, look, I've worked with people like Julian and Lisa, constitutional conservatives who have, a, who have come to this view. But there are two arguments that he's making at the same time, one of which does have appeal to people like me and one which doesn't. And to put this as simply as possible, he, there's one argument which is that parliament is not in a position to make good laws to do with Indigenous affairs because it doesn't have the information that it needs to do that. So we need to create a body that will advise parliament about Indigenous affairs so that it makes better decisions. And that has appeal to conservatives. I think it has appeal to classical liberals. That's basically, a subsidiarity argument. If yeah, basically, yeah. yeah, basically anyone who thinks that it's true that parliament, because it sits at the very top of this pyramid, sometimes doesn't have all the information it needs this is actually that's the basis of my entire philosophical yeah, yeah that's why we don't want governments doing things um and so there's the, that's the bit that's designed to appeal to classical liberals uh and also and also to conservatives as i say because of our concern about um the constitutional equilibrium but there's also this moral argument that says that for the dignity of individual indigenous people um and for their collective dignity they need to be recognized as a discrete group in the constitution the polity itself needs to change the way it operates in order to, uh, and this is the way they use the word recognise, to recognise that identity uh, and that enables the flourishing of those individuals within that. And those are two different things. The first one can and, actually and, be... And they, and they move backwards and forwards between the two and, arguments. And, and, and yeah. the first one, the argument about, about information, doesn't require a constitutional change, right? It just requires a body to provide that information. But the second one, if you, if you believe that individual dignity comes from the recognition of your essential characteristics as the member of a particular group, um, and that there's a structural problem with the institutions as they currently exist, such that uh, you're not getting the opportunity to flourish, um, then that requires a constitutional change. But going back and forth between the two and mixing up these arguments um, makes it very hard it's like a moving target it makes it very yeah. hard for us all to respond to it and then he says that we don't know what we're talking about well we do but we might be talking past each other because there's two lines of argument here speaking of conflation the the other thing that's come through in, in Pearson's speech and uh is the conflation between this act of recognition uh principally for symbolic measures and also the voice to parliament i mean the the, th the thing about how you go about identifying and creating special privileges, uh, if you like, for uh, Indigenous Australians is that, you know, the more uh, political power is vested in that, then the more critical it becomes. And when the issue was purely about a symbolic recognition, which was what was on the table right up to the time of the Uluru Statement, that was perhaps, you know, sort of one, one set of issues, that uh, you would be symbolically privileging a group of people in the Australian Constitution and, and entrenching a division. But what's actually on the table is a voice to Parliament, uh, a constitutional change enabling a voice to Parliament selected on an as yet undefined but presumably representative model um, in which you would somehow prove your indigeneity and that would entitle you to create this thing. And, and one of the things about the voice to Parliament, like nowhere has Pearson or anybody else really addressed any of the questions we've been asking at the IPA and, and other people have been asking about how a voice to parliament would actually work. And one of the things I reflect on actually is um, Pearson uh, appeals to authority with Murray Gleeson um, 
uh, as a former High Court Justice, who is an expert on the law, and he says that should be determinative. But constitutions are actually about politics. They're, they're, um, it's like setting the rules of the game. And one thing about our child soldiers uh, <laughs> is that they've all worked in Canberra in various guises. And if there's one thing they do understand a little bit about, it's politics. Well, this is and, right. And, so and, and the idea that, oh, don't worry, it's only an advisory body. It's only entrenched in the Constitution as an advisory body. And they'll only comment on matters specifically to do with Indigenous uh, Australians. I mean, if you if you believe that, there's a there's a bridge in Sydney. I'd like to say that's no, actually it, something. Sorry, that I've been thinking about. How do you how do they get, are they going to do a DNA DNA test? Are they going to do, are they going to say you have to be? Are they going to give a certain amount of so um, a percentage that so, you need to pass in order to be to represent the voice? It does. So we we have we have we, we have we have measures of indigeneity already, and usually it's things like um, you've got to be able to demonstrate that you've got um, a family members that b you see yourself as a member of the community, and c you um, uh, are seen by others as a member of the community as well. It's sort of a it's a sort of <laughs> I've looked at this in in the distributed identity case. And there's you need been to, some case law on to, it. and and there has mm. and um, and and that's remarkable. But we consistent. but we don't know that that's what would no be of course proposed. of course we don't and 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 we d- we don't know any of the details and the specifics and this is why i sort of see this noel pearson speech um has a significance beyond his actual argument that this is um a i think this is a measure of desperation this is showing that pearson at least thinks that the debate has gone already out of control um and that's why he's doing things like appealing to murray gleason and in fact the quote that he used is kind of extraordinary do these culture warriors really believe that they know better than the country's most senior elder of the law the senior elder of the law being murray gleason the former chief justice of the high court now that's not the way i think about murray gleason as a senior elder who's views are now you know sacrosanct in fact murray gleason is an excellent jurist but on areas of economics i'm not going to um uh i'm not going to give him credit i'm not going to give him huge credit on areas of politics on areas of liberal philosophy on areas of conservatism that's just not how this debate is going to play out and if if pearson thinks that that argument to authority is what will land this for the pro-voice side they are going to lose. I think he's focusing very narrowly. I think Scott touched on this, is that um, they want to talk about the Constitution as a very discrete document and that you could change it however you want. Um, the Constitution, of course, is a bit more than a document. The Constitution is all of the practices that develop around the operation of, of power in this country. And um, this is why, like, suppose that you had a, an advisory body that wasn't in the Constitution. Um, it might actually develop over time that there was a convention that its advice would actually be taken into consideration on Indigenous affairs matters. This might develop over time to the point where it was kind of quasi-constitutional in that sense. But that that's, that's the whole point exactly. of it. And that, that, and that, that, and that, why would you have a voice to parliament? Why would, you short, why would you short... But I think, why would you short-circuit that, that process? Um, and, I, and again, I, I would say that the reason for short-circuiting the process is actually a moral argument rather than an argument about a voice as a specific proposal. Yes, as I say, they've moved on from saying we want the recognition to saying we want a voice to parliament and by enacting it, that achieves that recognition. So as long as those two things are together, uh, practically it makes the referendum a lot more difficult and it makes uh, recognition a lot more difficult. And and the other thing that's not addressed in Pearson's speech, of course, is the history of such bodies, is this uh, deliberate not talking about the history of ATSIC, 
which was the previous representative Indigenous body, which in the end was wound up with bipartisan support based on the, the terrible experience of it. And um, so we have a, a really quite... Um, uh, 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 I mean, Pearson goes out of his way to make an inspirational speech. He's, he's very much in the, you know, the, the high school of, of rhetoric and, and good luck to him for that. But it's not actually addressing any of the, the, the questions that people are actually asking. No, and I think what he doesn't realise or is going to struggle with is the fact that this debate has a long, long, long time to run. If they are going to get a voice to parliament up, it's going to be multiple parliamentary inquiries, independent commissions, um, and then a referendum debate and trying to draw a line under it, trying to demonise your opponents or attack your opponents um, is uh, just a sign of desperation at this very early stage. Now we might take the discussion uh, to the UK where uh, Bella was recently and has been following a, a case that has uh, great implications for academia and, and how inquiry is conducted in our institutions of higher learning. Bella, can you tell us about that? Yes, um, I went to the UK in June and I went to see Professor Nigel Bigger who is the latest... Um, well, actually, it's it's been going for a couple of years. He's a he's a victim of uh, of, of sort of the online mob by his colleagues. Um, I went to visit him in Oxford. He's a, a very he's a good egg, I would say. <laughs> it's a very British. <laughs> he is a, he's a very good egg. He he's been at Oxford since two thousand and seven. He's Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology. Um, he's also the Canon at Christchurch Cathedral, which is the Christchurch. Um, church at the college um, he has these enormous rooms that have a, a garden and two stories and you know it's really the life it's not a life you'd want to lose um, <laughs> and uh, he has set up a project called ethics and empire um, and I just sort of printed it out it's it's um, it's been going for two years it's, it's a five-year project he has a number of, of colleagues they get to, they get to study classics. That he has cl colleagues from classics, Oriental studies, history, political thought, and theology, um, and they want to have a series of workshop workshops to measure ap apologies and critiques of empire. Um, because he is he is actually an ethicist. He's an ethicist. By, yeah, by he did trade. a BA in, in history, but he's an ethicist by trade. He's one of the top ethicists. So he's asking the question about empires. He's asking questions about empires. Yeah. Um, he had the t t t um, he had the nerve to. Uh, published an article in the Times two years ago saying maybe empires are not all that bad. Maybe, maybe there are, you know, it's not all about um, um, oppression, exploitation and, and, and everything else. And of course, this caught the, the eye of um, a academic, um, I use the term academic loosely, at Cambridge called Priya Gopal, um, who's um, absolutely addicted to Twitter. Um, I don't know how she has any time for, for research when you look at how much time she spends on Twitter. Um, she she noticed his 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 research and then started tweeting about it um, two years ago. And um, I found some of her tweets. Um, it's just it's just they're they're, they're just hideous. Um, she talks about what comes out of his mouth, his vomit. Um, he, she calls him a racist. Um, she says that he's a crybaby, um, and um, it goes on and on. She. Um, she mustered 58 colleagues to sign a petition from Oxford against him. These, um, these are academic colleagues? Academic colleagues at Oxford, people he knew. Um, it came completely out of the blue to him. He'd never experienced anything like it. Um, so he, so he, had a, he had a funded five-year project. Five-year project, which is still going. 
It's, a, it's actually a happy ending to this story. But they, but they mustered a petition to, they get, to, get, petition him fired, to get him fired and, yeah. and to shut the project down. To get him fired and shut the project down. And then she, she organised a second petition, a worldwide one that, that had 2,200, sorry, not 2,200, 200 signatures on it. Um, but as he pointed out to me in our conversation, you know, that was 58 colleagues out of 1,600 at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> so, he had, so he had a very positive spin on it. Um, he also, one of the historians who was working on the project with him um, resigned because he couldn't cope with the, the, the criticism and, and, and everything else. And um, three or four new colleagues came along, none of them were white. It was quite satisfying, really, because it's just, you know, they're interested. In, two of them were Indian, another one's a Persian, and they're all very enthusiastic about it. So the, the project is still going, but he, he was completely astounded and shocked at, at the the hatred and, and, and the stuff that, that this woman is tweeting. He'd never encountered anything like it. So it was an interesting story and an interesting thing that he's been going through. But he's come out the other end, um, and the difference is between Oxford and Cambridge is that the vice-chancellor is much more sympathetic at Oxford and much more solid, um, where at Cambridge they're just, as we've seen with, with uh, Jordan Peterson, they're just, they're just giving ground to, to the, the students. Yeah, well, there are echoes of this in um, the what recently happened with Sir Roger Scruton, so another great uh, British academic. And guest of the IPA. And, and, mm. and a one-time guest of the IPA. And, and um, as was billed when he was here at the IPA, the, the world's uh, foremost or preeminent conservative intellectual. Uh, and Roger Scruton um, gave an interview in early April to the British political magazine New Statesman. Uh, and... Uh, in this, this interview was, was touted by the guy he gave the interview with, whose name was George Eaton, uh, on Twitter as Scruton saying a whole bunch of outrageous remarks about the Chinese, uh, about Muslims, about Hungarian Jews. Apparently, you know, according to Twitter, uh, Roger Scruton had gone and slandered a whole bunch of different ethnicities. And, you know, immediately people were like, this doesn't sound yeah. like Roger Scruton. <laughs> this doesn't sound like something he would do. <laughs> Um, and there was a campaign to release the, the trans, the, a, a transcript or the, the full audio of this interview um, led by um, Douglas, uh, Murray. Douglas Murray, uh, the, the, the English writer. Um, and when it came out, finally they relented, they released this audio and it turned out that Scruton had not said anything particularly controversial, any more controversial than any normal conservative position, I guess. And he... Um, but you know, he had been sacked from a government position, um, an unpaid advisory position, but nonetheless a, a, a job. Um, the, the, and, and, and the Tory government had, had, had thrown him to the wolves. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, so he, had Tory, he had Tory MPs yeah. attack him on, on Twitter again, um, yeah. which is something that I'll, I'll come back to, I think, um, why it's Twitter. But it's like the, the, the point here is the similarity is that, that um, a willingness to misrepresent in bad faith, mm. in total bad faith, the, the work of an academic and try and destroy his career. And, and in the, um, when asked about it, I mean, Scruton was quite, uh, almost came across almost mournful in, in saying that what they were trying to do was destroy his authority, um, which had come from years of work, years of writing and learning. And the authority was really the only thing that he had. That was the thing that he sells about himself and that this is what they were trying to destroy. And that's quite... It's quite, a, it's quite a sad thing because it's ideology, the, the idea that the answers are already known, displacing what we would think of as the, the role of universities, people like Scruton, people like Bigger, is to investigate 
investigate things and, and, and try and keep a, at least a bit of an open mind about it. So, tw- looking, so looking at the Nigel Bigger project, it's I mean it's an interesting looking project on the on the um, McDonald Centre website. Um, the purpose of the project are to pretty pretty basic. They're pretty um, uh, uncontroversial and straightforward, and and I would have thought important to trawl the history of the ethical critiques of empire, to test the critiques against the historical facts of empire, and then to garner possible ethical resources for contemporary deployment. Now, regardless of whatever Nigel Bigger's personal views are or his own personal research, you could quite easily squeeze in a very anti-empire, anti-colonial or post-colonial perspective into that. And it seems like that's part of the purpose of the project. Well, I mean, they're just looking at facts. Yeah. They're they're looking at both sides of the story, I think. And um, the the problem with this whole Twitter mob thing, as I was thinking about it, the, the sort of, you've got this world that is really not reality on the on the internet this this unreal world of of that has nothing to do with our physical our breathing our, our, the the true world but that yet that can that can destroy you and and it, they they want to destroy people they want to see people lose their whole, their entire livelihoods they want people i don't think they care when people commit suicide because of what they do because that is that that is the that is their their aim is to destroy them um and i think it's so dangerous and i think Someone like Nigel Bigger has only only survived, and Scruton only survived because of their their years, because of they've been, because they're well established, um, and they have they have a good network of colleagues around them. Otherwise, it's just it's this twitch fork, isn't it? It's this mob rule. But, it, but is it is it too easy to say that it's an unreal world separate from? everything else i mean it, i think I it think is not real world because you turn it on and off with a button you I'm, don't have to you don't have to be in that world it's a totally it's 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 you can just walk away from it but it, it i mean you, you can but yeah. it is it is the environment in which we do real things so those debates that are happening on twitter are not representative but they are um real debates they they are things that exist in the real world and they have genuine influence over the real world because of that. Well, what social media has done is convince people that the things that they all say um, and the the consensus that they build amongst themselves is reality. So it's actually fed into what is probably the uh, preeminent delusion of our times, which is that we can, around the philosophy traps, it gets called conceptual engineering, which if you've ever heard a phrase (laughs) that makes you feel that George Orwell's life and death were completely in vain. Uh, it's was conceptual engineering. 1984 was a guide. Yeah. Not a and, 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 and in all, in all seriousness, the, the, the work that they do here is to say they believe that if they are uh, engaged enough, if they say things over and over again, if they block out the opposition, that what actually happens is they've created things become reality, yeah. and that's yeah. why yeah. and that's why they're so intolerant of anyone who says, "Well, you know, the facts might actually be otherwise." But they're yeah. not wrong. They're not wrong. I mean, so so yeah, they can't create a reality in 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 that sort of objective sense, but they can create a perception. Well, it's it's about power, which is all they're interested in. But Bella, mm. in terms of what you actually do about it, though, mm. you also spoke to um, uh, Toby, Toby Young, Young, yes, uh, the writer and journalist who actually. And you, and you mentioned the networks of support that uh, Bigger and Scruton at least could fall back upon. Now, Toby, Toby Young's got some ideas on this and he's now uh, currently uh, one of the editors at, at Quillette, a uh, fine career as a journalist, but um, he's very concerned about this but actually has some ideas on what uh, conservatives might do. 
Yeah, his his he um actually ran the week after I arrived. He the week sorry the before I arrived. He and Nigel had run a sort of um, days conference of people who had been on the other end of the the Twitter mob. They came from all over Britain and um, they they've and, and, and the US and the US as well. Yes, a couple of guys. Yeah. Was, it, was it James Damore or uh, I'm not sure if he, no, I think there was he was. An American yeah, I think guy. he was there. Yeah. There was an American guy. Um, so they so Toby Young's trying to trying to get a sort of. Um, union going of I, I don't know how he's describing it really he's um he wants he wants he wants everyone to first of all he wants to be able to provide legal advice to people who who are on the other end of of this kind of thing so he's trying to i don't know what the what, how i would describe it a, a union of of it's, it's a like sort a sort of it's heterodox a, it's, a, it's like a, it's a, like a free speech a free union. speech union it's like a heterodox academy with with teeth where, yes. Where, where they're not just saying oh we believe in such so like wouldn't we all should be nicer to yeah, each other yeah we should other, be nice well yeah, <laughs> but if someone's about to be yeah, if fired, someone's about to be fired, we shouldn't really be that nice. We yeah. should be. So it's it's a, it's a it, it, in, in sort of the the lefty parlance, it's a support group. It's a safe space. Yes. <laughs> it's a safe space for for right thinking, for right thinking academic, for victims, um, true victims of of the Twitter mob. And, um, I, I th uh, and I think he's really onto something. Yeah, I think we really. I, I mean, it's not dissimilar to uh, the, what's happened with Peter Reid, um, yeah. who's yeah. said you know in this very studio that. You know, he doesn't know what he would have done without the network of support that grew up around him, uh, and of which the IPA was very proud to play a part. But, but what we are, what we are asking for is the maintenance of a norm around things like academic freedom, or just the liberal belief that you should be able to that, that we all have different political views and they shouldn't affect our interpersonal relationships. So, uh, what is what we're seeing right now is that a group of the progressive left are trying to push directly against that norm and reimpose a new norm that says um, there are some things that are out of bounds. If you talk about, you can talk about the cons of empire, but if you even say mm. the word pro, then then that is out of bounds. Not that is a wrong mm. thing to say, but it's just morally wrong to yeah. even consider. So what we need is we need to aggressively defend those norms or defend those practices that say, you know, you we should be able to debate things openly and open-mindedly in academia. We should be able to have personal, religious or political views and that not affect our employment or not be seen as to affect our employment. Um, that's what we actually need to do. It's very hard to see any other way um, to defend these without precisely this sort of norm defense, this this um, this defense of the practices of the past. But how do you enforce that on Twitter? I mean, I think we've all you, seen that long conversation you, with Joe you, Rogan you, and 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 um, the guy that runs Twitter. What's his name? Um, Jack. 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 Yeah. Jack. At Jack. Yeah. So you can't. You, you can't. You can't defend it on no. Twitter. But but part of what we'll have to do, and this is not necessarily a very optimistic thing, but part of what we've got to do and part of what institutions have to do is accept that there are going to be internet critics. There are going to be people who are internet critics. But they're, it, they're more than critics. They're not critics. So they're, they're, you could say that they're bullies. You could say that they're trying to manipulate. But if the institutions like employees, if the universities don't respond to critics on the internet. So I, I have this theory about why people have 
been very unable to manage or understand what happens on Twitter. Usually, in the past, it was much harder to tell an organisation, a university, that they were that you're unhappy with what they've done. You would because you'd have to write a letter and all that sort of thing. We've dropped the costs of that down to basically zero, but the institutions haven't really managed to figure out what it means when one person, ten people, a thousand people send angry tweets at them. They used to know how much a angry letter meant because someone had spent all the time. And if you got 10 angry letters, that meant so much popular discontent. But in the Twitter world, we haven't really adjusted to that. And I think we're going to have to. They have to get better at ignoring mm. the cranks. Yeah. Right? Other, so like otherwise, someone, we haven't got a choice. Otherwise, some, the cranks are in charge. Yeah, when, someone comes, when someone comes at you with a, a blue drop, little teardrop in their... <laughs> handle you just ignore them you just ignore them and this because their opinion doesn't count for anything and this is the this is the thing that needs to be understood is that the crank because the, the, one of the good things about this and i very rarely say that there are good things but one of the good things <laughs> one of the good things about social media just is that identify the costs of identifying a crank have gone down as well yep because um, they're out there all the time, and yeah. you can just go. This person's yeah. a lunatic. And, and then, just, well, yeah, and, then we, and then we realize they're tenured professors as well. But we're increasingly <laughs> good at reading symbols. And 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 and, 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 and uh, degenerating. I mean, language is dying. If I was just going back to scrawling their nonsense on the wall. Exactly. <laughs> not even in Latin. Um, and and to your point, Chris, I think this is what Bella alluded to: the difference between Oxford and and Cambridge, which is not something I normally know or care very much about but um <laughs> cambridge has rolled over on a few of these and there's um the academic uh noah something or other sorry this is a live podcast uh who was uh, uninvited from the job that he had been offered due to some uh controversy over something to do with um uh, behavioral genetics or something Speaking of cranks. Who's also friends with Toby Young. Right, They're there you go. He would, he would be in this union of persecuted academics. Thank you, crowdsourcing around the podcast table. Thank you, internet. Whereas <laughs> the point about Oxford is they did hold the line, the vice-chancellor was solid, and look what happens. Here we are, months later or years later, and everything's okay. Yeah, he's All you've job. got to do is not wet your pants. So, the, <laughs> yeah. the, I mean, mobs, they might occasionally storm the Bastille and, and wreak havoc, and then they move on. Well, he figured it out quite quickly because he said that he tried to engage with a few of them at the beginning for about a week and then realised it was totally pointless. So he didn't... He yeah. realised he, no, he, he realised early on that no, you don't feed the mob. And often you have to recognise that for the mob, for the individuals in the mob, this is consumption. This is this is an entertainment. Yeah, this plan. is what this is what mm. they do. It's a fun hobby. Entertainment. Yeah. yeah, so all yeah. take people yeah, down. Exactly. On so okay. Toby, Toby and his friends, part of it is just showing that this is contested space. Yeah, it's, it's saying to the people, you know, whether it be a CEO of a corporation or one of those contemptible Tory ministers, it's like, hey guys, this is contested. Don't just accept this this mm. invented narrative from this artificial world that's being constructed. So. Good luck to Toby Young. That's a that's a union I'd like to join. Yes, and, I think um, we will be. Ma maybe maybe all our child soldiers should join. I think they join should, as even well. though they're in their 30s. The dilemma, the dilemma comes when membership becomes compulsory. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, 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 no compulsory. So close shop, think tanking, academia, <laughs> close shop. Yeah, no, must join. Can't possibly have that. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, think tanks, research, and evidence, um, we've also had this week the annual Hilda survey from uh, Melbourne University, which has been very interesting. 
It has. So um, Hilda is the long longitudinal study of mobility, um, social outcomes and so forth that's run um, out of, uh, I think, the Melbourne Institute. Um, it's been running for the better part of a decade now um, and they've released their latest report. This is an incredibly um, significant piece of social science research um, and we can draw lots of conclusions out of the data and we should do so, but it's just a very valuable product that um, is, I don't think it's unique to Australia, but it is something that really helps us navigate the Australian um, Australian social outcomes. I think the big takeaway um, for this Hilda report is the same takeaway that we've had every single time that there has been a Hilda survey released, that we are actually a remarkably um, resilient, we are a remarkably flexible and um, remarkably equal economy in the sense of um, the inequality statistics over the course of Hilda have really barely budged. We're not getting more unequal, we're not getting less unequal, and we're actually doing really, really well. You can drink into the data a bit, but that headline story that the, so the way we measure inequality is through the Gini coefficient. It has remained between 0.29 and 0.31 over the entire history of Hilda. Andrew, I know that you've spent some time looking at inequality data in the past. How do you sort of, is this more of the same or did you draw something else out of this report or? Our director of research, uh, Dan Wild and I, we put out a paper um, late 2018 about, uh, because at the time uh, inequality had been back on the agenda and we wanted to have a look. Um, and it's good to know that the story that we put out then uh, is confirmed again today, which is that, or this week, which is that, um, as you say, in terms of the, the Gini coefficient for income inequality, uh, it's been steady actually since 2001. Um, and the point that we wanted to make, the point that we were making was that um, the real story is not about inequality. The real story in our uh, economy is about opportunity. When you look at the bottom third, so there's a breakdown in the Hilda report, I think it's page 36, you look at that, the when you look at the bottom third of the, the income distribution, 30% of the people in that third will go up at least one bracket within a year. So it reveals that there's a, a real kind of dynamism in our in the distribution of income in this country and that people aren't always uh, in one part or another. People's fortunes are rising and falling uh, and and, and that's, that's a good thing. And so the debate needs to be about how do we get people onto that path? The, the point is, how do we have a society where, because there are some people who don't move, that's true. Uh, and the important thing is we know that we have an economy where it's possible to move. So how do we get people onto the right path so that we continue this kind of dynamism and people can improve their lives? That's the real debate, not about inequality opportunity. Yeah, and, and we want to encourage people to be mobile if they want to be specifically mobile. So not everybody wants to move all the way up the income distribution because they've got other preferences. And I'm not talking about lazy doll bludges or anything like that. I'm saying, you know, if you if you want to work in the arts, you're not going to be very well off, but you're obviously getting you're, you're making choices. So we want to maximize the ability to move based on your preferences, if that's what you want to do. I think the other thing to point out though is that income inequality is one way to think about inequality. It's not the only way to think about inequality even over the course of the lifetime. Because um, what's interesting to me and has always been um, of some fascination is consumption 
inequality or consumption equality. So this is the idea that we consume differently based on our incomes and that does not precisely match to income. And on consumption equality or inequality, we're actually getting more equal. And I'll talk you through what that means. So it's actually very hard for very wealthy people at the top income distribution to buy things that people at the bottom half of the income distribution can't afford. So you can spend more money on the most expensive phone, but what the, some of the poorest people in Australia can still get a phone that has almost every single function available. The, um, the, the air, airlines will try to sell you, if you're wealthy, a business class or a first class ticket, but in fact you're buying basically the same product that the economy purchases who fly on Jetstar are also getting in that you're getting to travel across the world. You uh, in that, that must be hugely annoying to become very rich and then discover that there's nothing you can buy and sort of I I, I, I argued I argued in my libertarian alternative <laughs> book an argument that I'm very proud of and unfortunately no one's really picked up that capitalism exploits the rich not the poor. They try to sell you the gold iPhone of which is no different to the normal iPhone except for the fact that it's made of gold. So income and yeah, but consumption you don't care. No, no, you, no, no. You're, you're consuming yeah, something else. You're not exactly you're not, being exploited because you don't care. <laughs> but I mean, but what it's doing, what it's doing, what it's doing is it's subsidising the uh, it's subsidising the development of things for people down the income um, scale. So, so uh, my only point is this: that we, when we measure inequality, we need to measure the lived experience of people at the top and bottom ends of the scale, not just a a rude income inequality measure. And that's what's, what's really interesting about this is that we're, we're talking about inequality, income inequality like this actually, as Chris says, it elides one part of the story, which is the, the material well-being of people at the bottom of the distribution. It also elides what is causing the debate, I think, on the other side of politics, our side of politics, which is around the kind of constraints on this dynamism, on this mobility, things that there are goods that people get by staying in place, um, by being settled, having a home, having a family, uh, having a career, all these things that give people certainty. And that the, the debate, that the, the really interesting policy debate that we should be having is about how do we deliver those goods to people, those basic human needs, and maintain an economy that can improve people's material yeah. circumstances. That's the interesting thing. The inequality thing is a red herring because people don't want to talk about all of these traditional normative supports of the good life. When when Bill Shorten was trying to run this inequality argument, um, to uh, less so actually in the election, but um, but certainly over the course of his um, stint as opposition leader, he made the following claim, and he made it over and over and over. He said things like, "Childcare is up twenty eight percent. It out of pocket to see the doctor is up twenty percent. Specialists are up nearly forty percent." And then he said, everything is going up except your wages. Now, when you identify those particular costs, what's the uniform um, characteristic of them? They're government supported. Highly or regulated. Highly regulated. <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of this inequality debate, this um, cost of living debate is getting deeply confused between the relationship of a couple of um, uh, unfortunately not innovating very well sectors that are completely government controlled yeah. and the market, which and, is... And that's why he which, lost. And yeah. that's why he lost. A couple of other things came out of it, which I think are very positive, which is um, 
uh, we do have an interest in in mobility as um, and and at the end of uh, you know the, the the press coverage of of the Hilda survey, which is mainly concerned with poverty and and poverty is bad and and you're mainly talking about the the bottom decile and, and what's happened in the bottom ten percent, but uh, there was uh, Professor Wilkins from uh, who runs the survey did actually point out that. Most children of low-income parents are likely to be in a higher income bracket by the time they reach their early 30s. Almost two-thirds of children whose parents have the lowest 20% of incomes will be in a higher income bracket in adulthood and so on and so forth. So there, there is, Australia is still a remarkable country, a very lib, a properly liberal country when it comes to social... You know, this is the essence of liberalism, that um, where you start should not determine where you finish. We don't uh, ascribe... Uh, your lot in life, depending on what class you're from, um, and those opportunities are still there. And, and they did mention in passing that absolute poverty actually improved during the mining boom. So I'd like to see a bit more emphasis on saying, well, let's repeal the bans on fracking, <laughs> repeal the laws that's uh, you know let greenies clog up our mining projects in the courts. Let's start promoting our coal industry instead of demonising it. That's what's going to tackle poverty. And, and more generally. I, I want to see Professor Wilkins say that. No, and, and more <laughs> generally, and, 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 and a couple of people have pointed this out, that um, these indicators are better when the economy is growing more. And where it has gone backwards, it has gone backwards in the last couple of years as the economy has slowed or even since the GFC. So when we are talking about the importance, the moral case for economic growth, that moral case is in part because it improves these social indicators that other that, that we care about. So it, in, it improves the social indicators of mobility, of inequality, and so forth. We, we should be focusing on growing the economy and ensuring that people can make more decisions about their own lives. Absolutely, and uh, I think we discussed that on a previous podcast where people were loving Jacinda Ardern's focus on gross national happiness. Loving, absolutely. And I, and I think you admitted to a single-minded obsession with economic growth. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's to, right. To and almost the exclusion of everything else. Absolutely. Uh, we have come to that part of our podcast where we talk about uh, books and culture, and uh, it's, a, it's a big week for Vietnam. It is. Well, I was in Vietnam last week, so um, since I was... Um, I have to um, require everybody talks about it. Um, so I, I was in Vietnam. RMIT actually has campuses in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, and I was there doing a lot of blockchain work. So if you follow the Vietnamese press very closely, as I know my co-panelists do, um, they would have seen um, me in and around that. Uh, but when I travel, I try to read books about the places that I'm going to. So I read a book called Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War by a fellow named Viet Tan Nguyen. Um, in fact, his novel, The Sympathizer, recently won a Pulitzer Prize. Anyway, the book, though, um, that I think is worth talking about is um, uh, is this Nothing Ever Dies book. And it's about how various communities in Vietnam, in the United States, Vietnamese exiles, um, North and South Vietnamese, rethink and are conceptualizing and try to understand the war. The overarching lesson of this is... Um, there hasn't actually been much reckoning with um, the legacy of that war. And it's easy to visit Vietnam now and see the fastest growing economy in the world, to see um, a country that is at the absolute centre of the geopolitical and trade 
headwinds and to forget that just half a century ago it was embroiled in um, a massive global or semi-global conflict and that it was closed until really 1998 or so from um, from the West uh, because of the, of course, loss of the Vietnam War by the Americans. The thing that really stuck with me in the book, though, and was particularly um, poignant was the fact that the South Vietnamese army graves are really hard to access and the government officially tries to prevent people from accessing those. It's tried to forget the southern deaths um, and the southern military deaths. So apparently if you want to visit a south, a southern Vietnamese army military grave, you have to um, sort of climb a fence behind a whole lot of barbed wire stuff. And, um, and they're trying to they, – they, they still at this late stage, this far since the war, still trying to suppress – um, uh, that memory when it, it's actually when you visit Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon um, you can actually see quite a sharp cultural distinction between these two places that has not really been resolved even though there's been some sort of uh, reconciliation with with the Americans yeah there's been reconciliation so, so with the see, Americans but the Americans but, but not with not but, with but their, that's their, that's their not their what, that's not where the bitterness is right <laughs> um, as I understand it anyway so speaking to um, uh, lots of people in Vietnam and expats in Vietnam and um, and and local particularly people out of southern Vietnam the, um, uh, I, I think the wounds are I'm not going to say they're raw but they are um, they are buried wounds and um, well it was a, a ferocious civil war and civil wars were always the worst yes well the American war and then the French war and then the um, so on and so forth and and the European wars reminds me of um, Frank Fioriti's uh, book about World War one he said uh, World War one no end in sight <laughs> still, 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 still going. Still going. Still dealing with the consequences many, many exactly. years later. Shouldn't have shot that archduke. <laughs> God damn it! If only. No, it's actually true. I mean, World War One was like the end of civilization. Yep. Anyway, mm. we, we, we still haven't dealt with it. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, more on Vietnam. So on Saturday night, I went and watched the new cut of Apocalypse Now. Um, for the younger members of the audience, uh, this was a film from 1979 by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, he of Godfather fame. Uh, sorry, that's another 70s movie, so it's probably not a helpful <laughs> reference for you. Um, but uh, remarkable to think it was produced only uh, sort of four years after the, after the fall of Saigon and the effective end of the Vietnam War. Um, it is a movie based nominally based on that war, but inspired by Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, uh, a remarkable book that is compulsory reading, um, reviewed by John Roskam and Andrew Bolt in the IPA's podcast series on the great books of Western civilization. Um, so we transpose that storyline to Vietnam uh, with Martin Sheen going upriver to find someone who's uh, uh, allegedly gone mad, actually did go mad, uh, Colonel Kurtz. Um, it is a remarkable movie. It so, but why... Are they doing another cut of it? So, well, you actually sit down and the first thing you see is Coppola's head talking about why he's doing it. <laughs> and, um, uh, I mean, the first the first cut that was basically forced on him because, you know, his version would have been three and a half hours and, and the studios weren't having it and they didn't know what to do with it. It was a movie about a war that wasn't like a Hollywood war movie. Um, it did, had no John Wayne. The, the American soldiers were not the heroes. 
they're all on acid or smoking weed or fighting with each other or incredibly, you know, racist, awful people. And um, so the studios didn't really know what to do. They cut massive amounts out. Then he did uh, something called um, uh, the director's cut and uh, that was where he put a lot of stuff back in but it was still – it was what they had lying around. Yeah. And he's saying at the age of 80, I've now actually had the time to go through it properly and so this one's actually called the – the final cut. Is, and it long, is it longer? Is he added? It's more actually shorter than the the, the middle redux. one of those. Right. So okay. The middle one was the Redux Apocalypse Now. Redux. Yeah, Redux. Yeah, so yeah. Redux. Taken out the with, bits the, uh, with sections about the French and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. the French is still in there. Yeah. And left and, in the plantation. And that and that's one of the contested ones. Like, why did they leave that in? I think it was actually to have a voice where these people uh, they do two things. Uh, this this uh, family of French people still living in their plantation in the middle of jungle in the middle of nowhere with with Vietnamese servants uh, placing you know the the, the four course meal in in front of them. It does two things. It enables them to have a conversation about what are you you know you Americans you know nothing, mm. um, and also the French are mad too. The, the, the whole point, and this is what Coppola says in his introduction, no one understood what it meant to make a war movie, which is surreal. And uh, and now we look back on that whole experience as being surreal. And as uh, we go upriver, everyone they meet is mad. They're, on, they're, they're going to find this guy who's mad, but they're all mad. Mm. The American mm. soldiers are mad. Robert Duvall you know, steals the movie as this uh, mad c- commander of, of, of helicopter gunships. Um, and who wants to go surfing in the middle of a war zone you know, because Charlie don't surf, one of the great lines of all time. Uh, the French are mad and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's Coppola was justified in leaving that whole extended French sequence in there. Well, that's the argument for the French sequence, so <laughs> thanks, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, well, You've heard it only here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, no, I think it has its moments. And, and um, there's, there's other things going on, but... Um, the, of course, other people uh, hate Apocalypse Now because they say it is a war movie and it, and it glorified the American role in Vietnam. And I think that was just Coppola as a filmmaker could not help but make awesome scenes about war being fought. And in that sense, Platoon is the, 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 the perfect anti-war because they can't. it's the least convincing argument for a war at all. It doesn't glorify the... The violence, in yeah, the, the, the Oliver Stone stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, this is how you, you glorifies ha- partying in a war zone, but not. not yeah, that's partying. right. And this is this is how you get this uh, sort of double meaning in popular culture attached attached to lines like you know I love the smell of napalm in mm. the morning, which of course is uttered by Robert Duvall's character, who's clearly loopy at some level because he just <laughs> pretends that he's somewhere other than Vietnam, and. Um, uh, but, you know, it was a line that was repeated ad nauseum through the 80s and 90s with a certain amount of, mm. you know, God damn it. <laughs> you know, God damn it, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. <laughs> so it's a complex movie, but it, 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 is a, and it remains a classic for all the, all the right reasons. You want me to go? All right. Uh, I've been... Uh, seamless, stu- seamless transition. Seamless, yeah, sorry, I did not uh, pick up the IQ for anyone else. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the... I've been watching, uh, I often talk about things that I see on Netflix on this show and um, one thing my wife and I have started watching, um, I think I've mentioned before my wife is Peruvian so we watch a lot of shows that are in Spanish um, which is good for me to practice. Um, Anyway, but this show is, um, uh, they've turned the life of 
Simon Bolivar into a telenovela. So a telenovela is like an extraordinarily long South American or Latin American uh, soap opera. So it starts with him... Uh, in a full soap opera style? Yeah, like, oh yeah. Like, yeah, really, like, soap romantic, opera style. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, you know, some of the... Not fully, it's like got a bit more money behind it because it's an epic, <laughs> but it's, it's... But it's mainly concerned no, with no, who's the, sleeping the, with who? The, the, the <laughs> defining, the defining uh, characteristic of the telenovela uh, genre, as far as I can tell, is wild swings of mood <laughs> uh, and tone. So one scene will be played for laughs and then the next scene someone will die. <laughs> Um, because and, and it does in, in amongst liberating South America yeah. from the Spanish. Yeah, and, but, and this is also because, like, this is actually without being glib about it, is something of the the Latin American uh, view of the world, which is that this and this is what you, where you get um, magic realism things is that sort of absurd things just happen to you, right? And it can happen at any moment. So telenovelas kind of have that attitude. Um, Simon Bolivar extraordinary figure to make a soap opera about uh, a world historic figure. Um, who probably doesn't isn't as well known or well understood outside of South America. But this is a this is the only man in history who was both the general in a war of independence, the president of several countries, a man who tried to create a, a pan South American empire, and a philosopher, a bloke who wrote down his theory about government um, when he had the time. And he's a man whose life exemplifies. The, the battle between theory, because he, in theory he was uh, very much um, an Anglophile, a liberal, but he was also a man who had to govern, he had to make compromises in an extremely diverse, complex part of the world. Um, and his life is, is really interesting. He, he was a, from a, a, a very rich family, he's a, but he was mixed race. Um, he's a, so he, he kind of embodies some of these these tensions that go on in South American politics. And, and what's really interesting about it is that um, he ultimately came to the conclusion, um, and I'll be interested to see if they deal with this in the show, he came to the conclusion um, that a South American country, because of its diversity, would require a very strong executive, if not a dictator. And that's how he justified some of his actions later in life. Um, but if I was a dictator, I'd also come to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a theme. It's a theme. In <laughs> Through deep thought, I've decided that yeah. I get all the power. <laughs> it's, a, it's a theme. It's a caudigismo. Uh, the strongman is a theme in, uh, in South American politics and, of course, has added resonance because when I talk to Latinos, they recognise Donald Trump as a kind of caudillo, a strongman, and as just what's interesting from their perspective about Trump at least, at least some people remark this to me, is that what's odd about Trump is that he that it's odd for the United States to have Trump as president, not necessarily for an American country to have a figure like Trump as president. And uh, how many, 60 episodes or something like that? Yeah, it's 60 episodes, which is short for a telenovela. Yeah. My, my <laughs> wife on the one that she's watching at the moment is on episode 144. So. Yeah. <laughs> I watched one. It was it was very interesting and I, I really about a guy I didn't know much about and beautifully shot too, I must say. Yeah, yeah, good, good production value. They really put some money into this one. So um, if you're interested in South America, um, perhaps because you've been on holiday there and you want to know more about it, and also just because I think um, Simon Bolivar is um, a misunderstood or at least not well understood uh, figure in world history. Um, I was actually looking up a little bit about him before we came in and I found out his full name is mm -hmm. Simon José Antonio de la Santísima Trinidad Bolivar Palacios Ponte y Blanco. 
You're just showing off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why we. He was a, he was an aristocrat who led a kind of populist uh, revolution. So um, he had a slave as a child. They had a slave working. Yeah, yeah. And the, the show doesn't um, shy away from no, from that the, from showing his his privilege and, and things like that. Um, so I've been reading, um, and I'm halfway through Jeffrey Blaney's lovely um, autobiography, which is which is called um, Before I Forget. Um, and it's only the first 40 years of his of his life, but I've just found it fascinating. It's such an amazing glimpse into the 30s and the 40s in Australia, and I've just been reading through his Bachelor of Arts, his history degree at um, at Melbourne in the 40s, taught by Manning Clark, um, and and the, the the fact that the students turned up in full tie suit, polished shoes. Apparently in the student union, there was there was a place where you could get your shoes polished for free. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and that was the standard, the standard of the day. But it sounded absolutely, and it's just, and it really made me realize just how far we've come since the 1940s <laughs> in terms of what you learn in progress. a Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne University. It's just, uh, you mean they didn't have queer theory? Unbelie- they didn't have queer theory. But I'm always struck when I see Jeffrey, when I've I seen know. Jeffrey Blaney speak, I always get this feeling that he has forgotten many, many more things than I will ever know. <laughs> like he, he just, you can see him sort of dig deep into his, his huge he's, memory bank and tell a story. And you're he's like, forgotten a lot, but he's also remembered a, yeah, a, yeah. enough to be able think, to write I just a book. Think that for he the must, yeah, it's incredible. Do, does he? Have you read up to the parts, or does he go into the um, disputes with Melbourne University I, I itself? I, I don't know because I, he said at the beginning he says I, I stop when I'm forty, and I don't know when that happened. Oh, it would have been later than that. Later. I think he probably doesn't talk about it. But it does talk about... Uh, he was an independent historian as well, um, uh, as well as his academic career. I mean, he essentially was, was commissioned to write all sorts of books. Yeah, and it's, look, it's just interesting... St- you can see very early on in his childhood his fascination for history does, does and how he, he learns about Australian does history. Does he talk about Wesley College at all? He does, and that's really interesting. He's a, another fellow old boy because Wesley College has changed a lot oh since my he gosh. went there as well. It's incredible because a lot of the um, a lot of most of the, the teachers had just come back from the Second World War, so the, there's very interesting stories about um, the characters and the and the. the it's it's a fascinating book. It's it's really interesting. I really like the point that Scott made though about um, his academic or his, his career as a historian was very much commissioned work, or or in in part it was commissioned work to mining companies. To I've got a history of Camwell, the suburb Camwell that was obviously funded by um, uh, the Camwell Council or or, what, or the local government there, um, and that's a that's a really interesting and unusual way to have a historical career then as as now and of course if um you were to try to replicate that and set yourself up as a um historian who did work on commission you would be um thrown out of the academy for um selling yourself mm. or or for um uh for conflict of interest or something like it's that f- so. fancy writing mm. a history about a mining company oh. well yeah i mean a history of a mining company regardless of whether you're pro or con that that, that itself would mm. be out of bounds <laughs> yes much better that you get half a million dollars from the arc to write mm. about you know narratives of, of blah 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 yeah. you know gen- gender in the yeah. in the Car- caribbean in the 17th century or something like that which is where history is now um uh, jeffrey blaney I, I believe we'll be speaking at the samuel Griffith Society yes, on Saturday. on Saturday night, so any alert listeners can get onto the Samuel Griffith Society website because um, my instruction uh, to uh, young people that I talk to is always never ever miss an opportunity to hear from 
Jeffrey Blaney. He is a living national treasure. That was our books and culture segment, and we have come to the end of Looking Forward. Do not forget that it is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you would like to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Andrew Bushnell. Cheers. And Bella DeBera. Thank you. And, of course, our producers for today, Saul Muscatel and Cy Robinson, will be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>